Welcome to Keep It Simple Sundays, where on Sundays I keep it simple with a half-hour interview with one guest to share their journey and the challenges, triumphs, wisdom, and lessons they learned along the way. I'm your host, Wei Fam. For this episode, you may remember my guests back in June for my Celebrating Pride episode. I hope love wins in everybody's life, no matter what format that may take place. But especially, love yourself. If you can love yourself, that's where I think you often can meet the love of your life too. Who we are is deserving of celebration and for as worthy of love as anybody. You may also remember Carrie seemed to like a certain number a lot. The thing is, what's interesting in life is that sometimes you can see something or read something eight times, eighteen times, eight hundred times, and just maybe one day something clicks. That may be because their anniversary happens to be today, August eighth, eight eight. Once I realized their anniversary fell on a Sunday. I really wanted to share their love story then, rather than during Pride Month. I had asked many couples to share their love story, but for one reason or another, it seemed to always fall through. Which was just another way the universe was showing up to make it very obvious how very much destined their union is. Listen to both Megan and Carrie share their eternal love story with me. So let's start at the beginning. How did you two arrive to the same destination in order to meet? What were the circumstances that led you together? When I was, you know, in my teens and early twenties, I was just a confused person, and I was looking, looking, looking for something. I never really knew what I was looking for, but I knew it was important to keep looking, and so. But I did a lot of traveling. I did a lot of reading, and when I was in university, I did a study abroad program in Mumbai. And so I studied in Mumbai for six months, and then afterwards, I was able to travel for three months. And people kept saying to me, "Oh, go to Dharamsala, go to Dharamsala." So I ended up going up to Dharamsala.、Um, so I remember taking a, a bus, a night bus from Delhi up to Dharamsala. And when the bus pulled into Mathur Ganj, which is the upper part of、uh, Dharamsala, the Tibetan settlement. It was probably around five in the morning, pre-dawn, and there's a bank of prayer wheels in the middle of town, and there were Tibetans who were circumambulating it and chanting. And I just, I loved the vibe. I thought it was really lovely, and I ended up, I ended up staying there for、uh, five weeks. I took a, a one-week intro to Tibetan Buddhism course, and then I spent the rest of the time at the library there, and I was reading, and I met a group of people, and we went on hikes, and so it was a really nice time. So that was sort of part one of my story. Part two. Fast forward like five years after that, I was in my late twenties. At that point, I'd been teaching English in Japan for about three years, and I'd reached the point where I thought, well, either I'm going to settle down in Japan or I'm not. And I'm not. Like I wanted to go back to North America, but I didn't know what I wanted to do because, I mean, in your late twenties, I, I had a lot of friends that were just stressed, like, oh, I need to, you know, find a career and find a partner and get married and, you know, get a car and, you know, sort of all of these pressures, get a house, and I just. I wasn't interested in any of it, frankly. I was like, I don't. I, I'll. I want to skip that phase of my life. Like, I just don't really want it. I was flipping through a yoga magazine one day, and there was an ad for a Buddhist center in California. They were looking for work study students, and I thought, well, that sounds like a 
valuable way to spend time. And I really sort of connected with the idea of it. I thought like I paid off my student loan, do I really need to make money? Not really. And so um, I know one thing led to another and I ended up there for seven years. My last year there, that was when Carrie ended up at the same Buddhist. You can tell that part of the story. Yeah, so uh, timing was very fortuitous for me and I because of the fact that we met when we met and that our paths were able to cross. Uh, Megan is Canadian and I am from America, United States of America. So when I was at grad school, part of my degree, you do a year on campus, so it's very intensive. That's when you're doing all the educational theory um, classwork. And then you are supposed to take that theory and apply it into practice. So I was taking some of the you know intensive theories I was learning at school. And for me, I had met one of my colleagues at school was a Tibetan woman. And so that was my first exposure to um, Tibetan Buddhism and to um, the Tibetan diaspora. I was interested to see the merging of Buddhism in a Western workplace. So I was extremely interested in seeing how Westerners were dealing with a a different kind of um, cultural way of being, especially in in what we usually exist in as a capitalist uh, society. Long story short, I decided to apply to a Buddhist center because as a grad student, I either had to get a job or I had to get an internship. I had to do something in order to write my grad school thesis. So for me, it seemed like a pretty great deal to, you know, go to a beautiful place in the country um, and have free room and board, free educational classes, you know, get to learn meditation, get to learn yoga, Tibetan yoga, and meet some really interesting people from around the world. So to me, it was a, it was a no brainer when I was accepted to say yes and to go. So I decided to move over to California. I, I moved and I go to this, you know, interesting little Buddhist center in California. And one of the first people I meet is Megan. After getting to know each other in this Buddhist center, how do you two come to the realization that you want to be together romantically? Well, the first time we met was I was sort of assigned um, to be Carrie's point person. There was all this buzz before Carrie came aboard, right? That, you know, like, ooh, Carrie, high caliber, master's student. I was assigned to sort of meet her and show her around, that sort of thing. And so our first meeting, I remember being kind of tongue-tied around you because I knew you were really smart. And I remember, I don't remember what I said, but I stammered out something. Then I went into the kitchen and I thought, wow, she's probably super impressed by me and my blabbing on. Probably like a week later when we started hanging out with each other a lot more and we were, you know, having conversations till one in the morning. And from my end, I wasn't going there at all. Like I was just, um, I had sort of another agenda for the following year and I assumed Carrie was straight actually. So I was just like, oh, I've made a really, really good friend. We would end up walking home a lot together. And I noticed that she was sort of popping up wherever I was. Like at one point I was taking care of some water offerings and I would go out the side door at a certain time every day and then Carrie would be there and then she'd be be just like oh hey hi I'd be like oh it's you again okay let's meet up in five minutes and talk you know that kind of thing and so we just we got along really really quickly and then we started dating after maybe about three weeks and then there was sort of that period where like should be is this like really a good idea but anyway it's we ended up yeah uh dating pretty quickly and then we were together for the rest of that year since then. So just to clarify all of that, um, because I I think 
especially with same-sex relationships, especially female same-sex relationships, there's a stereotype about, you know, the U-Haul <laughs> where things progress pretty rapidly. So I just want to address that really quickly <laughs> because I just want to say that. So when I moved to California, and yes, there was buzz around Megan too because she was this amazing office manager who was really working with very little and making a lot happen in a nonprofit setting. But you have to remember here that by living and working together at a Buddhist center, we did everything together. So when we met, it was like, you're seeing each other in the kitchen for breakfast. Then you're all getting in the Dharma van together to go to work. And then you're at work together. And then you're hanging out at lunch together. And then you might be walking home again and having dinner and doing dishes and all that. So it was a very, very compressed time frame. So by us saying three weeks in a traditional dating sense, I think there was, there was a lot that occurred in those three weeks. There was something that was happening between Megan and I that I had not experienced before. And I think one was that when me, meeting Megan, Again, I was in the process of coming out. So I was in new terrain in a sense. And I was very intrigued by anybody who kind of embraced who they were. And Megan was, she's eight years older than me. She had kind of lived a different life. She's also Canadian. So there were so many intriguing aspects of this woman that I was meeting. And I was interested. And part of that is, I think when you can own who you are and really feel comfortable in who you are, that, that resonates and people will pick up on that energy, or at least I did. And so I was going out of my way to try to, you know, find those pockets of time where I might be in the rose garden. And then we have these beautiful little interactions under the moonlight, surrounded by the beautiful roses in the Buddhist center, having deep philosophical talks and getting to know each other. So yes, things happened quickly. And again, we were only at the Buddhist Center for about a year. And it was about nine months into our relationship where we actually decided this is something serious and we're willing to uh, put our money where our mouth is in a sense and see where this goes and then make a big leap. What were some early impressions or memorable moments between the two of you while you were at the center? So one of the artists I really liked, you know, when I was 10, 11 was Cindy Lauper. She was just like right out there. And I felt really comfortable around the, the art of people who were comfortable with themselves. And maybe they were, they presented a little differently. And who knew that 24, 25 years later, that the Cindy Lauper's True Colors tour, um, the concert would be the site of our first date. <laughs> so who knew? <laughs> we were we were coming back from work the one day, and then yeah, there was like an ad or something that we heard, and so we knew this concert, Cindy Lauper was coming to town. And so Megan, it was funny because Megan actually was, I think you were trying to galvanize like a little group of us to to head on over, and um, I had other ideas, so I finagled it so that it was not a little group of people. It was. When Megan came downstairs, it was just me. I you know, had my little backpack full. We had a blanket, a nice little, you know, charcuterie spread or whatever. And uh, yeah, we got out of there. We did not wait for anybody else. I had a very different intention of us going out. You did not know necessarily it was our first date, but I knew it was our first date. <laughs> One of the moments I think that was very special for me, uh, and again, this was, I was new to meditation. I was new to Tibetan Buddhism and communal living in, in, in that sense as well. Megan led a midnight chant. And so there was this beautiful midnight chant that we did. And 
we all afterwards everybody was kind of decompressing they all came up for tea and they were in the kitchen and you know there's groups of people swirling around and honestly i this is i believe it was a spiritual high i think this is what people kind of talk about when they say certain things are maybe turned on in your brain through meditation relaxation i don't i don't i can't explain it all i know is that from across the room when i looked at megan i felt like i could see her energy and it was a beautiful aura of white light and she was so beautiful i i actually couldn't even look at her i i felt spiritually high i needed to get out i went to the rose garden and later on we actually did meet up but i think there are opportunities in life where sometimes you're able to see beyond just the physical actually and that's a very powerful moment and i already was getting to know megan and i knew we were aligned in so many philosophical, ethical ways that for whatever reason, um, looking at you that night after a beautiful meditation session, you glowed. And uh, I knew I wanted to be around that for the rest of my life. And, you know, it was part of the ways that I fell in love with you and fell hard. So you're both temporarily at the space at the Buddhist Center. Megan, you're a Canadian on a visa and Carrie, you're there for your graduate studies. And at some point, you have to part ways. Why did you two decide to stay together rather than to separate after that temporary stay at the Buddhist Center? For me, um, I had actually gotten into a master's program in Nepal. It was a master's in Buddhist studies with sort of, you know, an emphasis on Sanskrit and Tibetan. And I wasn't sure if that was the direction I wanted to go because I know that there are, it's difficult for translators to find work. There's not a whole lot of room in academia. And there were a lot of contributing factors just on the practical end. And also, um, at one point, uh, my meditation teacher called me into her office and she said, um, I think that if you go to Nepal, you might die. And I asked her why, and she said that she had had a dream about my hair being cut. And for a lot of Tibetans, that's an inauspicious dream to have. You know, there were just sort of all of these things that were pointing to my not going to Nepal. And it was something I'd really wanted to do for a long time. But I started thinking, oh, is this really the right thing for me to be doing? And so, yeah, that was um, another thing that was definitely giving me pause. <laughs> As your dad said, Kathmandu, Kathmandu. Yeah, and there was a lot of political strife at the time. There were Maoist insurgents that were going into Tibetan communities. I, I can't remember exactly what the details were, but it wasn't politically the safest place at that time. So I was having some second thoughts just for practical reasons, but I knew that I was ready to leave California. Yeah, Carrie and I were very... We were both never people that thought that we were going to get married. Like, I never envisioned myself being married. So for a lot of that first year when we were going out, we were thinking that we would just sort of go our, in our own direction, you know, at the end of a year. But it, it became really clear that that's not what we wanted to do and we started one day talking just about the future and carrie was writing our thesis at that point and i said well you know you could come to canada we could both come to canada and 
then I suggested marriage and it just, I hadn't been planning on saying it at that time, but as soon as it flew out of my mouth, I knew that we were serious, that I was serious. And then we had maybe a four or five minute conversation about it and we settled it. We decided to get married, but it just felt so right. Like something about it just felt intuitively so right. And I mean, the truth is, you know, we're born alone and we die alone. That's in Buddhist teachings and it's everybody's reality. But if you can make a connection with somebody in your life, it's a blessing. Like it's an amazing, it's an amazing, amazing thing. And love always deserves to be nurtured. So that was why I chose to build a life with Karen. As a grad student, I knew my time in California was going to be limited. I was only planning to be there for a year. I did not expect to fall in love <laughs> with how I was there uh, working on my, my grad's thesis. Nonetheless, I did not expect to fall in love with a Canadian who her visa was about to expire. So we were put in a position suddenly where I think sometimes you don't necessarily it's not that you don't care about the world and the politics around you, but sometimes it's easier to just to understand and recognize it when it affects you directly. So prior to my experience of being interested in same-sex relationships, I didn't really understand the oppression that maybe LGBTQA plus couples and people experience in the United States. Now, all of a sudden, I'm standing in California and we're in the midst of the Prop 8 mess where you're able to be legally married and then you're not able to be legally married. And it was referendums and, you know, what, what do Americans really think? As a return Peace Corps volunteer, I dedicated years of my life serving my country because I am an idealist and I believed in it. I thought I was, and this was, a, and it is a great thing to do. But when I came back and fell in love with a woman, and then I'm being told by fellow Americans that this love is not equal, that we can't have the same things, the same economic benefits or protections afforded under uh, the law if you're married. I suddenly had to wake up to that reality and it was jarring and I was heartbroken. I was incredibly disappointed and angry to suddenly realize that in my country where I felt like I had served some time on behalf of this country, I love this country, you know, my family's American, I am American, yet I felt like a second-class citizen. And so now we're in this, you know, we're facing a dilemma. There's a time constriction and there's a, a real issue of borders and borders going up between, potentially between our love. And that it was infuriating too, to know that these politically imaginary, socio-political lines that are drawn can essentially keep people apart. There was no option essentially to stay in the States if we were gonna to be together and not do a long distance relationship. So Megan was either gonna to go to Nepal or she was gonna go back to Canada. She was gonna to have to go somewhere because her visa was up. I'm a grad student. I wasn't necessarily planning to stay and not, you know, to stay at a, at a place where it's, again, you're, you're not making any money at all. Uh, and it's a very intensive work environment as well. But I, I was interested in, in doing something else, but I was very open to, I didn't know where I was gonna go, but I was open to going anywhere really at that point. So I had a lot of flexibility because I was also working on my thesis. So there was a lot of privilege in that. So when Megan had suggested, you know, let's get married and go to Canada, it was in a sense, a beautiful gift that we had that opportunity to do. And also as an idealistic 
progressive leaning person, you know, I think we think about Canada in some, you know, sometimes in a utopia sense, if you're standing in America and you're experiencing oppression. So suddenly I'm looking across the border so close, I can touch it, but I'm not there. I've never really been there. But yet if I go and stand there and live there, then my love is equal. And there's some other access to social justice measures such as healthcare. I know I, I had experienced not having healthcare. It was a beautiful, it was a beautiful opportunity and it seemed like the right place. It was gonna be a big leap, a big jump, a big move leaving everything behind. And for what? For love. <laughs> and I think there's this great quote, it's close to my heart, and it's uh, by Caleb Gibran in his book, The Prophet. And it's, when love beckons to you, follow, though the ways may be hard and steep. I think we were caught up in the throes of love and it was gonna just have to all work out, but we, you know, we were still gonna have to sort out all the reality and the detail, the practicalities and all that. So then that gets us into, you know, oh, if we're going to do this, what does that actually mean? You know, we're going to have to reach out to a lawyer and all and jumpstart this whole other the next process of the stage of getting there to Canada. But it was a time in my life that it was very difficult and it was upsetting, but also very empowering. You know, I am a, a proud American, but I'm also a very grateful Canadian. Considering the compressed timeline, why did you two decide that marriage was so essential instead of maybe just staying together in a non-marriage setting? What were the fortuitous circumstances or opportunities that led you down to marriage? I mean, the reality is that for international couples, marriage really is the practical choice. And I think that if people were to say to me, hey, should we get married after knowing each other for a year? I probably wouldn't be like, yeah, right on, you know. If two people live in the same country, there isn't really that sort of need for an accelerated timeline, right? But for Carrie and I, it's like we had, everything was kind of accelerated for us. Like we were together a lot for a year. Like we were working together, we were living together, like we were together a lot, a lot. And so that was sort of accelerated as well because of the circumstances of the food essentially we were at. And so moving to Canada and getting married when we did was, I guess, a continuation of the sort of accelerated nature of our relationship. And it really was the practical option. And when we moved here, it was 2008 and same-sex marriage had been legalized in Canada in 2003. So People were more used to the idea. Society had not crumbled and fallen apart. Yeah, you know, things were fine. And I was just so grateful to be able to come to a place where our love was equal. Like we were being taxed, but we were also being fully represented. Whereas in the States, that wouldn't have been the case. Like you pay equal taxes, but you don't get equal benefits because you happen to love somebody who is the same um, gender as you are. So very, I mean, although I loved it there, you know, politically coming back to Canada, the way Canada is federally was really just a lovely decision for us. And I'm just so happy that the option was open and I was able to sponsor Carrie because I'm, I'm Canadian. And it was funny about the date because we got married on August 8th, 2008. And we had to call city hall. You know, we just did a, you know, city hall kind of marriage. 
And we called them to see if there were any openings because we wanted to do it very soon after so that we could kickstart the process, knowing that it's a, a pretty lengthy process. And the um, administrative assistant, she said, wow, you are both very, very fortunate right now. We have an opening because we were interested in eight, the number eight because of the infinity sign. And I, I also thought, hey, it, it's very easy. We should never be able to forget this date if it's 8808. I'll never forget it, okay? It's an easy way to remember the wedding anniversary. <laughs> so we called and we just happened to ask, hey, is this, is this date available? And the, the administrative assistant was kind of stunned because she said, you know, I just had a call. Someone just canceled about five, 10 minutes ago. But what's interesting is eight is a very auspicious number in different cultures. So this was a date that had been booked by some people up to 10 years in advance because it's a very lucky day. And they actually extend the hours at City Hall to host more weddings on that day because there's just such a, you know, an interest in getting married on that day. So we happen to just say, this is a date we kind of were interested in. Let's just see if it's available. And then a slot opened up. So again, it was almost like the sun appearing behind the clouds unexpectedly. And it was beautiful. And so we just said, yes, book it. Okay. Again, just we're decided to keep saying yes as the doors were opening um, and the doors kept opening. So uh, that was pretty powerful and amazing. And again, we've never forgotten the, the anniversary because it is pretty easy to remember. And it does loop back into that sense of, uh, you know, Prop 8 was happening at the time. Uh, these eight, eight, these symbols of infinity, marriage, the sense of love enduring. So it was a very powerful day and it turned out to be a very beautiful day. After these fortuitous and idyllic circumstances that brought you to marriage, what were additional processes that were necessary to cement your union together? You have to kind of prove your relationship, that this is legit and you're not just there to, you know, uh, get a green card and it's almost like a sham marriage, that kind of thing. And I think also, especially as it, it, this being a new a new thing in the world, you know, because again, it was only legal for five years in Canada, we almost felt like an extra obligation of having to prove it in a sense, because it's not the traditional courtship, all eyes are, are on you to kind of prove that this is going to be a healthy, real thing. So it was interesting to go through that process, because some of the questions and things we were supposed to provide, we just didn't have like an engagement party, we didn't have some of those traditional things that were being asked for us to provide proof of <laughs> for our immigration status. So we had to get a bunch of references, people essentially, you know, vouching for us and saying that this was real. We also combined our finances to show our seriousness about being together. So there were certain things you, that we did legally that just helped improve the status of our relationship to show to Canada that, you know, this was serious. This was not a fly by the night impromptu decision, even though from the outside, some people might have said, wow, it's a very condensed timeline and you've only known each other for a year and you think this is going to work. Well, 13 years later, I guess our intuition did prove correct. You know, the process, I have to say, was pretty, it was difficult to understand mm. what it was. And we were lucky enough, we were able to hire a lawyer. We had the resources to do that. But. I mean, Carrie and I are two, you know, university educated people that were still puzzling over the documents, you know, into the requirements and going, like, what does that mean? What, what is this? The process was not easy. And again, I, I mean, I guess I'd be fascinated to know how much it's changed over time, but you would imagine that 
it would be more streamlined. Some of the things I had to do, for example, was this is part of citizenship too, in general, but I had to prove that I didn't have a criminal background in any place I had lived for more than six months. So I actually had to get criminal background checks from every state I had lived in for more than six months. And then I also had to get a background check done from Bolivia, which I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Bolivia. But these are kinds of things that are time consuming, that are additional costs. It's different paperwork. Every state had different size paper. Um, You needed to get your fingerprints done, you know, multiple times. So it was a very lengthy, long process of not only us getting married, but then becoming more legitimate in the sense of becoming a, a resident as well in Canada. So we're, again, we're very fortunate that everything worked out. Potentially, we think it's a love story that is a happy ending. <laughs> but there were challenges along the way that hopefully can inspire other people that are facing challenges that may resonate or are similar. But if not, at the end of the day, maybe it's just also a really positive story to share, to celebrate, because I don't know how many love stories actually, you get to say at the end, like, love wins. And I think, I hope, I mean, we're coming up on our 13th, <laughs> you know, wedding anniversary, but... uh This is for the long run, and at the end of the day, I believe love's going to win. That was my chat with Megan and Carrie sharing their love story. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Megan and Carrie for sharing their beautiful journey with us. From journeying alone, together, facing the challenges of Prop 8, turning that around to cement their love on 888, these two inspire us to believe by working together with the love we are brought to, seeming roadblocks can be transcended into an eternal love story. This will be the last episode for the season, and there is no better way to end this season with a love story that never ends. Thank you for joining me for the first season of Keep It Simple Sundays, and until the next season, I hope you continue to remember to keep it simple every Sunday.